Well, Miss Cheryl's coming with the good word for us tonight. Amen. Aren't you glad for the blood of Jesus Christ? Aren't you glad you have a covenant with God Almighty? Aren't you glad that's an immovable, unchangeable covenant? I tell you what, that's enough to make you rejoice all evening long. Oh, Father, I set my faith for these people in Jesus' name that the busyness of the day has got to drop off, has to drop off. I take authority over you and I command it to leave. The heaviness has to leave. The pain has to leave. God has given us authority over sickness and disease, power over sickness and disease. And in Jesus' name, pain, you have to leave. You don't have any choice. I give you a command in the name of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, that ears are open, hearts are receptive. We count on the presence of the Holy Spirit. We count on you to be here to be the teacher. No matter what I teach, Lord, I have confidence that you will give them what they need. I honor and bless you in Jesus' name and receive the anointing to do the task at hand in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to Joshua chapter 2, and we're going to cover the whole chapter. And I think I'm probably going to read, it only take a couple of minutes, I'm going to read most of it. Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me. But I did not know where they were from, and it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark, that the men went out, and I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, before they lay down, they had a conversation. I'll read that when we get there. Why do we have to go to Jericho? Because of the topography of the land. Where they entered Canaan, this walled city in the middle of a plain area, was the entrance point to get to all the different passes that would take them into the mountains and into the other sections of Israel. This was a fortress. Jericho was a fortress. It was a stronghold. But there was a purpose in having to pass right here. This was the opening into the whole land. So they had to conquer Jericho in order to get into the other parts of the land. It was a walled city. And a walled city can be very intimidating. You look at it and it's three stories high. That's, that's a pretty tall, large wall. And many of the walls in those days were broad enough, if you ever saw Ben-Hur, They were broad enough to have a chariot race on the top of those walls every once in a while. I don't know that they did that there, but people lived in the wall. They actually made their homes within the wall. And this is where our subject, Rahab, lived. There were about three million people camped across the Jordan from this city called Jericho. Do you think the king of Jericho was interested in what was going on? 
He had heard stories about these people. They had migrated all across the uh, desert area. They were now at the Jordan River and parked. He had spies that were watching what was going on. He wanted to know why would they be coming. It doesn't sound like they're coming to be friendly. 3, 000, 3 million people is considerably different than the people that they had at their in the Jericho. Well, the king's people, I should say, surveillance team, okay, we'll give them a name, the surveillance team, learned a significant amount of information, and we found that from the scriptures. Jericho was a pagan city, normal lifestyle of immorality, plenty of lying, cheating, sinners do what they do. And they were sinners, and they did it real good. You know? Okay. Now, this is an interesting statement. Uh, in the very first verse, it says that Joshua sent out the two men as spies. Purpose was to not necessarily to check the land itself, because Joshua had done that 40 years previously. He knew where Jericho was. He knew where the passes were. He knew where the caves were in the mountains. He knew the topography of the land. He didn't know the heart of the people. It's significant because if the people themselves are strong and robust and they're not about to be conquered. That means it's going to be a significant fight. But if he could gather information that the people were weak or there was some place that was penetrable, that would be information he would want to know. So he sent out two spies. Notice he did not send out 12 spies like 40 years ago. He sent out two He said, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they came to the house. They came to the house. They just came to the house. Now this is a divine encounter, without a doubt. They came to the house. Did they see this lady walking in the street and follow her home? I don't know. Did they just ask the Holy Spirit to lead them and come to the house? Uh, Was it an inn that would be appropriate to go into and get a meal and maybe saw her there? Um, There's a lot of conjecture we can go to. But I am totally and completely convinced after sitting on this, well, several years You know, I've taught this section before. This was a divine encounter. I say that because in the entire city of Jericho, there was one human being who had turned her heart towards God. There were two spies that were sent to find out what the attitude of the the people were. She had the information that they needed, and she needed deliverance, and the spies had the ability to promise that to her. This was no happenstance meeting. Now, I can't tell you I've had dozens of exposures to divine encounters, but I will tell you one. And it shook me to the core, not when it was happening, it was afterwards when I began to see the impact of how it impacted both of our lives. I had gone to Africa. This was the second trip to Africa. And we were, I have no idea where, somewhere in the boonies, And I had preached under a tree. There was Pastor Macherio, P. 
Pius Macerio, I've never forgotten his name. Big, big, tall Maasai with white hair. And there were four or five children and two ladies, and we had, that was the whole congregation, and I, they were under a tree, and I preached to them. And we went back to his house and had some lunch, and we're ready to leave now. And we were so far back in the boonies. <clears throat> there was no such thing as a road, no such thing as a trail, We just went through the meadow, right straight through the center, and we didn't have a four-wheel drive or anything like that. The car was parked at at Pastor Macherio's house, and we were ready to go, get on the road and get well onto the best roads by the time the sun went down. And Stephen went and turned the car on, and it didn't do anything. And it went, oh. They worked on it and worked on it, and the night came. And they they don't have floodlights or anything like that. It is dark. There is a light in the hut, and I'm told we will be staying the night. Uh I want you to know what I said to you just a few minutes ago, Debbie. I ate the best of the land. They gave me a mat. We laid on a dirt floor. The night was memorable because I was acutely aware of the sensation of things crawling over my legs. That was not particularly thrilling. But there's no choice. You're there. You do what you have to do. I haven't met the divine encounter yet. The next morning we got up and the car started. We apparently had to stay the night for a reason. And nobody questioned it. We just put our bags in and we're taking off and we're going down a hill. And there's a huge meadow in front of us. And on the side of the meadow, we can see uh, farmland, that kind of farmland. We are driving very slowly because whatever grass was there was at at least knee-high, probably higher than that. And I see something out of the corner of my eye. I see a Maasai warrior designated by his height. I would have guesstimated him to be about seven feet. Uh, I used to be six feet tall, and he made me feel like a little ant. He had a red cape on, a red wrap around his, his hips, and he had a spear. And his spear was up, and he was running and running right towards the car at full speed ahead. And he was running faster than the car was going, so he caught up to the car. Stephen uh, was the man that God gave me as a partner on that trip. And he said to me, he said, you do not get out of this car unless I personally tell you to get out of this car. He was my covering We did not know what this man was after. There was much conversation that went on. It was not in the language that I understood, but you can tell if a person is confronting you with anger or malice or they're just telling a story. He was very excited. Very, this regal man. He, he really looked to me very regal, very strong, massive in his body bulk. This is the story he told. There was a missionary that came to Nairobi, and he came through this particular area and befriended this Maasai warrior. The Maasai warrior invited him to his home, and the missionary came and ate there. 
and the Maasai warrior encouraged him, the next time you come through, stay at my hut. And the missionary did. And it was, his heart was softening towards the gospel. And he said, I asked the missionary to bring his wife. And she wouldn't come. He said the man, the missionary, was a redeemed man. He didn't see black and he didn't see white. But his wife wouldn't come. And I told the missionary, if I ever met a redeemed woman who would sleep in a Maasai's hut, I would bow my knee to Jesus Christ and I would accept him as my Lord and my Savior. What happened next, none of us were prepared for. He took off his cape. The British influence was very strong. He put his big red cape on the ground, and he knelt and put his hands in front of him, and he said, show me the way to this Jesus that would redeem a woman. I was allowed out of the car, and I started in English, and it went from English to Swahili to Maasai, and he would repeat the phrase, and then I would do another phrase, and I... We were absolutely astounded, I, I mean astounded, that two people, I didn't know what I'm doing. I, I just, led by the nose by the Holy Ghost, he stops the car from running, so what do you do? You do what you have to do, you sleep in the hut. And I had no idea that this man was waiting for someone, a redeemed woman, to come and sleep in the hut. I got on the, well, we left there, and Stephen was not driving. He had hired a driver who was another pastor. Three of us in the car. I don't believe a word was said for hours. The impact of what had just happened, that God would connect a woman from Spring, Texas, with a Maasai warrior who had a heart who was just ripe to be brought into the kingdom. He just needed somebody to sleep in a hut. And I said yes. Not to my credit, didn't have anything to do with it, but that was in a divine encounter. Seventeen years later, I met him again. He was a bishop. He had gone to school. He had learned his Bible well. He had started several churches. I sat there, and I, the scripture that God had given me, when we got back on the plane, I was dry, uh, flying home. It, I didn't look it up. The Lord told me just to tell you this story just a few minutes ago. It's from Isaiah. It's on the left-hand page, halfway down. And it's, it's in the 30s, Isaiah 30-something. And he says, If I need be, God is talking, I will take a raven and send them to a far country to do my purposes. I cried all the way home. I cried from Kenya all the way back to, to, to Texas. Because in the kingdom of God, I was used for a short season as a raven in God's hand to do a job. That's divine encounter. This is exactly what happened to Rahab in my estimation. She needed deliverance. She knew that there was going to be a confrontation, that this three million people are coming. They're going to override this this. Uh, place that she's living in. Her heart has turned towards God and she had a piece of information they needed real bad. Real bad. Okay. Do you remember? Oh, I better shut her off or she's going to ask me a question. I do that. If I say so. (laughs) Okay. Do you remember 
when we looked at uh, Exodus chapter 11 and 7, we were talking about all the different plagues in Egypt, that there was, God said he would make a distinction between his people and Egypt. He has said it, and he meant it, and he's going to do that again here in Jericho. We'll keep our eyes looking for it. Now, she was, the scripture says she is a named, uh, she was a, went into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab. We have a habit in English of making reference to things. At, when we lived on Stone Mill Lane at the other end of the street, there was a family that we knew pretty well called the Forests. And the forests moved on, and it became, became obvious if you wanted to reference the other part of the street, it's down by where the forests lived. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we use references like a, a physical attribute of a person. She's the lady with the crooked nose, you know? Uh, or he's the guy who got arrested. You remember him, don't you? You know, something that's significant that stands out. Well, I present to you the possibility that Rahab, and being a harlot, she was, without a doubt, at some time or another, a harlot. But there is evidence that I'm going to present to you that she wasn't a harlot anymore, that she was a businesswoman. Just hold on with me. Let me show you what I saw. First of all, the men, they were going to lie down. She was going to cover them with stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. This is not a pile of flax. This is pieces of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. And there was enough for two men to lay down and for her to go over and quickly cover them up so that you couldn't see the bodies underneath. That's a fair amount of flax. Flax was used to make linen. Out of a Manners and Customs books that I have at home on page 103, and it says that the flax was used and stripped down, and this is what they made linen from. Now, she was up on the third floor. She had the spies on the roof of her house, which is at least the third story, okay, uh, of the wall. And it says that she's going to let them down, as, as we go on with the story, she's going to let them down out of the window with a scarlet cord, which is at least 30 feet of cord. What in the world is the woman doing with 30 feet of red cord? Well, in those days, if you wanted to get color in your fabric, you took a rock that had the coloring, you boiled the rock, and then you had a pot of colored water. Colored water was hard to transport, so they would take a cord of linen, a big, thick cord, and they would soak up all the dyed water into the cord, let it dry, and it was easy transport, easy storage, and then when you were ready to dye your cloth, you took a piece about six inches long, you chopped it off, put it in a boiling pot with your linen, and before you know it, it's the coloring seeped out of the cord into the water, into the linen, and you had colored cloth. Isn't that neat? She had 30 feet of this on her roof. What does a harlot need with 30 feet of red cord? But it's going to be used for a good purpose. So I submit to you that it is possible that Rahab 
had been a har harlot, I'll say that definitely because there was an association there, but maybe she wasn't a harlot at this moment. She's had a change in heart. Okay, we see something else that's very different. You know, I watch a lot of cop shows, police, police shows. And one of the things that astonishes me is when they've had a rap robbery or something happen, and the detective will say, let's get all the surveillance. This was not planned. They didn't put cameras in special places just to get this particular information. There's a camera across the street. There's a camera on that corner. And they put all this information together, and they have very good information. Today, we would have cameras and videos and people that are taking cell phone pictures and satellite images and drones flying through the air, our surveillance. But they didn't have any of that. What they did have was eyeballs. And the king of Jericho was aware that Israel was right across the river, and he had spies that were looking, and, and he got a significant amount of information. He knew that two spies had come into the city. He knew how many. He knew where they went. They went to Rahab's house. He knew the exact time of their arrival. They came that night with a purpose and that was to search out the land for the possible possibility of conquest. Okay, they came to Rahab's home. And I read that section. She said, they asked her, um, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, two men came to me, and I did not know where they were from, and it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out, and I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. They didn't come in the house. They didn't search the house. Why? Well, they probably figured she wouldn't be stupid enough to hide the spies. Maybe that's a possibility. It surprises me that with all the surveillance that the king had, when they saw that the two men went into Rahab's house, there was nobody to verify they didn't leave the house. They didn't have anybody watching the, the door, it doesn't appear. In those days, privacy of any woman would have been respected, even a harlot. Now, she did what she was accustomed to doing. She told a lie. This is before the days of the Ten Commandments. But it still presents a problem. She lied to help the spies... But it's not the only one who's ever lied to help somebody in need. In chapter 1 of Exodus, there were midwives that the Pharaoh had pulled aside and he told them to kill all the male Israeli babies that would be born. They couldn't do it. Their conscience wouldn't let them do it. They let babies live because they had a fear of God. They had a fear of God, so they did what they felt was right before God. They told the king, the Pharaoh, they said, the Hebrew women are vigorous and give birth before midwives can get to them. And verse 20 says, God was good to the midwives. I think of Corrie ten Boom. She had hid people in her home. Jews in her home. I'm sure she told a little, quote, white lie, but her heart was clear before God. Slavery in the Civil War, the Underground Railway, I'm sure there was a lie told here or there. 
well, how do I, how do I make this gel? I mean, God is going to use this woman, and her heart is turned towards God. We haven't got to that part yet, but we're going to see it. The lie is recorded, but it is not approved of. There is no sanction from God and says, this is okay, but it kind of seems like it slips under the rug, doesn't it? Kind of seems like that. God looks beyond human weakness, and he saw her heart. I am so glad of that. I am so glad God looks beyond my human weakness, and he looks at my heart. Where she was coming from and where she was going. Now, many of you are students of the Bible, and you've read this before. Where does Rahab eventually end up? In the lineage of, of Jesus Christ. He knows, God knew at the moment her heart was turned that her, she was going to be valuable to bring her son into the earth. Isn't that his son into the earth? I don't understand all that. All I know is it was recorded, the lie is recorded, not approved of, but it certainly isn't the first time that's happened in history. Now let's go up to verse 9. No, 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. I'm going to repeat that. The terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. That was the information that they had to have. God put that woman in the spy's pathway with a divine encounter because she was able to share the heart of the people and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. My, this woman has had a heart change. She has, she could have responded. Faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing. And she heard, and she heard. And her heart was stirred. And she said, I'm going with the winner. <laughs> and she, she responded to God. You know, fear comes by hearing too. The rest of everybody else heard what was, what was coming in the, what had happened in the Red Sea and, and in the, to the kings of Sion and Og. They heard and it brought terror to them. God had prophesied in the book of Exodus that God's terror would go before Israel and they would, the hearts of the people would melt like wax. The piece of information that they needed, they got. Verse 12, Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household. Oh, the woman didn't just want for herself. She wanted her father, her mother, the household, brothers and sisters, uh, my father's household, and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. There was a custom in those days called hesed, H-E-S-E-D. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. 
I have helped you, now you help me. It's cooperation. The request is in the verse 13 and 12 and 13. I want my whole family saved. I know you're going to come in here and you're going to wipe this place out, but I want my family saved. I helped you, now you help me. She did not leave with the spies or asked to. She did not ask for monetary compensation for her help. She had a plan. And she was speaking to the only two people who could help her. Isn't that amazing? God took two people, well, I should say three because they were two spies, and put them together and they had exactly the information that needed to be shared. Okay, let's go down to, then she let them down, oh no, I have to, verse 14. So the men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. She wants it a little bit more defined than that. And then she let down them down by a rope through the window, her 30-foot red rope, for her house was on the city wall so that she was living on the wall. And she said to them, go to the hill country, lest the pursuers happen upon you and hide yourself there for three days until the pursuers return and then afterwards go your way. And the men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. We shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on your head if a hand is laid on him. But I tell you, this business of ours then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. Does anybody see anything significant about the red cord? What does it bring to your mind? Passover. The blood was supposed to be put on the doorposts and the lintel. Supposed to be put on the doorposts and the lintel so that when the death angel came through, she would see, she, he, it, pick it, I don't know. The angel would see the blood and pass over. And we saw that there was a significance that God had said, I will make a difference between my people and and Egypt. What did we see? We saw plague after plague come, but there was a place called Goshen, a place called Goshen that was safe. Hail did not come down. Darkness did not overtake it. There was light in the houses of the children of Israel. We looked at these things. There were flies, there were dead cows, there were frogs, one after the other. And there was no such thing in the land of Goshen. God did a miracle for the Israelites. Now we have, is is it really possible that God himself in heaven is setting up the possibility here for one woman and her family to have a land protected by God, a place protected by God, a land of Goshen set up in, a, in Jericho's wall. I tell you, I believe it's true. So much so that in my own home, 
as you go out my front door, I have a red cord. And it goes up and over and down. I don't... There's nothing magical about the red cord. It reminds me when I see the red cord, I'm under the blood of Jesus Christ. It's my reminder. You can put a sign, you can do all kinds of other things, but for me, it was important. When the death angel came, right after that in the scriptures it says, you're to remember what happened on this day. This is an everlasting thing you are to remember. When I read that, I said, I will do so. And this business of Goshen being set apart from the world, there's a lot of junk out there in this world today. I mean, there's, there's just gobs of stuff. And if it comes in the airwaves, it comes through our eyes and our ears, We've been fortunate. We haven't had guns in the street. We're a very fortunate people, but there's no saying that it couldn't happen. And we stand, I stand in my doorway. I live in the land of Goshen. That's who I am. Do you live there too? You may not necessarily need a red cord, but that's what they would, that red cord was indicating set aside. We're going to see in a week or two when they actually come in to take Jericho. We're going to see that red cord hanging from the window. Hanging from the window. Let me just check the time, how we're doing. We're almost there. The spies did go back to Joshua, shared with Joshua what they had heard. They didn't need to share what they had seen. It was all the same information as what Joshua had gathered 40 years ago, where the city is, where the pathways are. But he needed to know that the hearts of the people trembled. God God had them all prepared. He shared, the spies shared with Joshua the promise that was made to Rahab. And everybody was happy, even the spies, until they heard God's battle plan. We haven't got there yet, but they're going to hear God's battle plan. And he's going to annihilate the wall. Will the red cord do its job Will the red cord be enough that God will see it? And how is he going to make the rest of the wall fall down and and disintegrate and still not hurt this lady because she's set apart by a promise of God with a red cord, land of Goshen? If we ever come to a place where difficulties come into our homes, or cry to penetrate our homes, I tell you, they're going to be stories that are going to be told because believers who believe in the blood of Jesus Christ, whether they have a red cord or, or it's just what they have in their heart, they're going to say they came right to the door and then they left. I don't understand it. Oh, dear. What do we learn from Rahab and the story of Rahab? Well, the first thing I learned is God is no respecter of persons. Hallelujah, my past is not a stumbling block. Thank you, Jesus. We all, no no matter how good goody two-shoes we were, every one of us, have at least thought of doing some of those things to find out whether they were fun or not. 
Thank you that my past is not a stumbling block. Thank you that if you have me, if I was in the position with Rahab, if you can overlook a harlot, God, you can overlook my problems too. And it is time, says the Holy Ghost, to forgive yourselves of your past. This afternoon, he just put, oh, he put that in my spirit. He's going to call some of you out to do things. And that's going to be a stumbling block if you don't get rid of it. In the name of Jesus Christ, I encourage you. If that just pricked your heart, I encourage you to forgive yourself. You are no better than God. If God can forgive you, you need to receive that and go from there. Be ready and prepared when God puts the call on you. Second thing I can learn is life does have divine encounters. I've had more than a few. They have shaken me to the core at how precise God is, knowing who I am, thinking I have to perform, thinking I have to say something, I have to do something. I don't have to. I just do what he tells me to do. If he says, sleep in a hut, we sleep in a hut. And God can use something as simple as that. We think we, think we have to be educated. We have to be, have a silver tongue to deliver the gospel. Just go sleep in a hut. <laughs> oh, dear. Divine encounters. A third thing that I can learn from this story is that God himself cares about one woman whose heart was turned towards God. And she bargained for her family and won. All my family's coming with me. Every last one of them. Not leaving any of them behind. This past Thanksgiving, uh, well, this has been a banner past year. We closed the ranks. When uh, Ivan Tate was here, my grandson was sitting in the audience, and he didn't come up front, but he went and told his mother as soon as he went out of the auditorium, he said, I received Jesus tonight, Mom. That was one. And then we got the telephone call when we said we were going up to um, Indiana to visit my son. My grandson up there had already been baptized and received Jesus. And his sister hadn't. She, she'd just been dragging her feet. We watched my son baptize him, her, in the baptismal waters at Thanksgiving. That's my children and my grandchildren. That's the promise. That's my promise. And it came to pass. That's my promise. And it came to pass. And it shall be for you too. It shall be for you too. If it takes an Ivan Tate to get to the heart of a little boy, he'll give you an Ivan Tate. Whatever it takes. Next week, we are going to cross the Jordan. It's chapter 3. This is so significant. I'll just bait you just a little bit. When they cross from where they are into Jordan, all divine provision stops. No more manna. What are they going to eat? All divine provision stops. They have depended upon the pillar of fire. 
They have depended upon the cloud over them during the day to follow the cloud. When the cloud moved, they moved. And that's going. What are they going to look at? What are they going to see? What are they going to follow? And they have to have the right answer. And so do we. That's where we're going next week. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Our past is not our stumbling block. Thank you that it's a stepping stone. We, be, we take our boldness before you in Jesus' name, and we claim our forgiveness, and we put it behind us, ready for the call. Whatever you want us to do, Lord. Thank you for divine encounters. Make them many and often. We want to be in constant awe of you and how you run your kingdom. And thank you from the bottom of my heart for the blood of Jesus Christ that sits on the mercy seat in heaven this day, testifying the wages of sin was death. Jesus died for me. And every time I look at that blood, it reminds me of the death that has taken place in my behalf. That sin has been paid for. He who knew no sin became sin. He became sin. He became sin. That we could become the righteousness of God in him. And by his stripes, we were healed. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.